Okay, I think we're going to get started. I uh, appreciate all of you coming here. It's very humbling to see such a large crowd. The one downside is that originally we were going to be in a room with a projector and a board to write on, and we had to get moved here because of the size. So the best we could do is to bring in a portable one. I don't know how useful it's going to be, so everyone may need to use their imagination as well to try and keep in their heads some of the names and numbers that we're going to be dealing with. Um, the topic that we're dealing with today is a topic that first began to interest me when I was a high school student. I was participating in something known as the Chidon HaTanach, this Tanach contest some of you may be familiar with, that a lot of junior high and high school kids do. And for the first time, I, in the context of that contest, I had to study the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which deal with the early Second Temple period, when the Jews were under the control of Persian kings. And they assumed, obviously we would know, when it said that we have to do Ezra and Nehemiah, it only meant the parts that are in Hebrew, not the parts that are in Aramaic, but they never stated that explicitly. So I'm struggling to get through this book. Big chunks of the book are written in Aramaic, which is kind of difficult. And on top of all that, I keep seeing the names of all these different Persian kings and not being sure who's who, who came first, who came last. I had some vague ideas from what I remember hearing in lessons before Purim in elementary school, but things didn't seem to work out right. I'd see the, king, the kings seemed to be appearing in a different order than I was familiar with. I didn't know how to make sense of the whole thing. So, at the time, I remember saying something about it to my parents, and my father, who was here with us today, mentioned how there was a guy in the show we went to who actually was an expert in Persian chronology. He even kind of knew how to read cuneiform, and I should go talk to him. So I went to speak to him, and he was thrilled. It's not every day, like, in your show that some high school kid comes over to you and asks if he could talk to you about Persian chronology. So I go talk to him. He explained a lot to me, and Soon afterwards, he came out with a book called Jewish History and Conflict by Mitchell First. That's uh, since become a good friend of mine. And in this book, he simply doesn't have any profound chiddush in the sense that he's not presenting a new approach to Persian chronology. He simply catalogs for you the entire history of you know, rabbinic and other important Jewish figures who weighed in on the topic of who these Persian kings were, and what order they reigned. And so you can get a, you know, see different rabbis from the Middle Ages, from modern times. How do they understand the Persian period? In case this whole dilemma d- doesn't yet you know, speak to you, I want to open with a couple of questions, just so we understand what we're dealing with. So who can tell me in what year was the second Beit HaMikdash destroyed? The second Beit HaMikdash destroyed. 70 C, I heard. Okay, so for argument's sake, and I apologize if it's hard to read here. We got moved here due to that size. For argument's sake, we're going to use the year 70 CE. Red darker color next time around. 70 CE. All these years, we're not going to be getting into the real nitty gritty. So, for everything, you know, give or take a year. I know there are certain sources that indicate it was really. 68 CE, but roughly 70 CE. Again, a year or two is not going to be our problem. When was the second Beit HaMikdash built in a secular day? 516 BCE? That's a good, a good choice. So we have 516 BCE and 70 CE. Now, according to tradition, how many years did the second Beit HaMikdash stand? 
420 years. Very good. First Beit HaMikdash stood 410. Second Beit HaMikdash 420. So you begin to understand now. 516 BCE to 70 CE for 420 years. So everyone see that doesn't add up? 516 BCE just to get to like zero, to get to the start of CE calculations would already be 516 years. And then 70 years on top of that. So yeah, I understand some of his dates are a little flexible. 70... If you someone wants to move it back to 69 or 68, that's not that's not going to deal with the scale of a gap that we're dealing with. We're talking about roughly 166 more years, right? These two days together is 586 years, as opposed to 420. So that creates somewhat of a problem. Let's bring it home a little more in terms of the Purim story. Um, here we have 516 BCE as when the, as when the second Beit was rebuilt. Now, did per, the Perm story take place? Did Achashverosh live before or after that? Oh, good. So we already have a machloket going on here. As I was taught as a kid, Achashverosh lived before that. That's why he took out the camel of the Beit Hamikdash because he wanted to show that seven years are up and the Jews aren't going to ever rebuild it. So if we assume that, that would put the Perm story up here somewhere. You know, and I didn't put an exact date on it yet. So this somewhere up here would be Purim, but I have to add a question mark here because Achashverosh is a Persian king, and if you look at names of different Persian kings that sound kind of like Achashverosh, you don't have any perfect matches in the sort of Greek English names that we're used to. The closest we have is the name Xerxes, and if you yeah, I don't know Greek, but I'm told that the people who do know Greek that they don't have a really good chet sound in Greek. So those X's are really an approximation of the Chet sound. So Xerxes is really something like Chashersha. And we know in the Tanakh, anyway, things are written without Nikud, and you know, Nikud was d- developed much later. So just think of the consonants in Chashersha, Chet, Shin, Re, Shin. And if the X's in Xerxes are really Chet's, so that's, you know, Chirkhis or something like that, it's pretty clear to see that Xerxes is... Chashyarsha, which is the real Persian name, which is Achashverosh, and Xerxes lived in Persian history. He was the son of a king named Darius. Darius was king in 516 BCE. That's Daryavesh who built the second Beit Hamikdash. And so when we look in Persian records, <coughs> we have this you know, Xerxes guy living in between in the 470s, 480s BCE, which is a good couple of decades after the second Beit Hamikdash was built. And so we have a real dilemma here. I'm going to ask in the interest of time to hold off on questions till the end. But I hope everyone can see right off the bat, we have an issue here. We have 586 years from the construction of the Second Beit HaMikdash till its destruction. And this Jewish tradition that most of us learn at some point in our childhood, if we go to a good day school, that Beit HaMikdash only stood for 420 years. And... We have a Perm story that we're pretty sure happened before the Beit HaMikdash was rebuilt, and yet when we look at the actual king who was reigning during that story, he reigned a good, you know, the Xerxes lived in between here in the, you know, let's say 480s BCE, sometime around then would have been, you know, at least one of the earliest parts of the Perm story would have happened. So both of these things seem very difficult. When I heard how complicated it was, at least I felt a little bit better about the fact that I felt lost reading through Sefer Ezra, because it really was confusing. And before I address this issue, 
I want us to take a look inside the sources of the background for it. And I want to offer a bit of a disclaimer. I do not read cuneiform. I'm not a Persian historian. I'm not going to solve this dilemma by coming up with some you know, magic abracadabra thing where you know, 516 to 70 is somehow going to magically only be 420 years. The only ways to address it are going to be to take sides and say that either these numbers are wrong or 420 is not a historically accurate number. And same thing with the Purim story. I can't do some magic trick where it happened before and after the second Vedim Kips was rebuilt. The only options we really have are either to say that we don't trust the whole system of Persian history as we would read it in any you know, encyclopedia or history book today, or to say that we do trust that and we're going to somehow have to come to terms with the fact that we think that system is historically reliable, even though it contradicts certain midrashim that we grew up learning. Those are really the only two viable alternatives. Before we take a side in that, let's take a look for a second at some of the psukim that are behind this issue. Again, I apologize. I had hoped to be in a situation where I'd have a projector where I could put all kinds of psukim up, and so I only put the most important psukim on the source sheet as a backup, but at least we have the most important ones, so let's make do with them. So right on the side, this is page one of our source sheet. We find a few psukim from Ezra on top. And this is, even though it's in the book of Ezra, this is before Ezra's own time, when they're first returning to Jerusalem under the reign of a king called Koresh. Koresh issues a proclamation around you know, 538, you know, over 20 years before this 516 date, Koresh is the first real emperor of the Persian Empire. In English, he's known as Cyrus the Great. And this Koresh decides that he's going to let the Jews return to their land and rebuild their Beit HaMikdash. If you read the description of it, it's the, it's the last few psukim in Devei Yom Bet, as well as the first few psukim in Sefer Ezra. Roughly the same psukim appear in both places. He sounds like a very religious guy. He talks about how Hashem, the God of heaven, gave him his entire empire, and Hashem wants him to build a house for Hashem in Jerusalem. If you study history, you realize he, was, he was no tzaddik. He issued a similar proclamation the Babylonians, about how the Babylonian god Marduk is such a wonderful god, and Marduk wants him to build a temple to Marduk in the Babylonians' capital. He was, he was not a tzaddik, but he was very smart, and he realized that you had a lot of very bitter people living throughout his empire who were mad about the fact that the Babylonians had exiled them. So we were mad at the Babylonians, they kicked us out of Eretz Israel. The Babylonians had been involved in various wars with the Persians that led to the fact that Koresh is now the emperor of the whole thing, this whole empire. They had reason to be mad at the Persians, potentially, for taking over their empire. And so he made a strategy that, in general, he's going to curry favor in the eyes of lots of different populations by letting them all go back to where they were exiled from or rebuild what had been destroyed. And in each case, like a good politician, right, whenever we read the president's greetings for Rosh Hashanah, and I grew up in Tinex, so in our local paper, the Jewish Standard, you always see how the, the Prime Minister of Israel's greetings and the President of Israel's greetings always talk about the peace process. The President of the United States' greetings, and it makes no difference if it's a Democratic President or a Republican President, the President of the United States, who's not Jewish, he's the one who always talks about how this is a time where Jews reconnect with their God and take stock of their life, you know, all the stuff that Rosh Hashanah is really about. So it's not because he's, he's not a Jewish President, you know, the president of Israel, the prime minister of Israel, they're the ones who should be doing you know, tshuva then. 
But the President of the United States understands that Jews in his country are celebrating a very important day, so he releases a statement for it. He gives a similar statement to the Muslims before Ramadan. So, Koresh did that, and as a result of that, we now have Jews under a leader named Shesh Batsar, who have returned to Eretz Israel, and they're hoping to rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, but they run into some trouble. So we're told over here, that giving them a hard time. Amaretz here is not like an ignoramus, like we say in rabbinic Hebrew. It means that the, popula- the population that now considers itself the native population. These are people who were brought in because they were exiled from whatever places they came from before, you know, already going back to the Assyrians. And they don't like the fact that the Jews are going to build a temple and what they now consider their land. And the Jews are very clear about the fact that they don't want any help from these non-Jews living in their land. This is not going to be a joint venture. The Jews said, you know, it's not up to you to help us build a house for our God. And so they get mad. And then, they, you know, actively conspire, you know, hire all kinds of ringers to go give the Jews a hard time. Through Koresh and Daryavesh, here we're going to need to draw more. We'll go to board number two, pretending it's a little bit larger. So we have here a couple of names Koresh, and it leaves some space here, Daryavesh. So through the reigns of both these kings, Koresh and Daryavesh, they gave the Jews a hard time, and some other kings as well. The next passage continues. Under Achashverosh, again, they gave him a hard time. Yeah, so we have Achashverosh. This presumably is Achashverosh with Parim. However, this is not... This is not the letters of Haman. This is a sitna against Yudah and Yerushalayim. This has to do with internal Judean politics. This is not an attempt to wipe out all the Jews in the whole empire, this seems to be some separate thing. We tried to, you know, the local, local non-Jews in Eretz Israel told him the Jews are conspiring against you, and he, you know, there was some sort of an exchange then of a hostile nature against the Jews in Eretz Israel. And so too, Vimeir Tachshasta, in the days of there was another letter like this. Here we have the most detail. It tells us the names of the people who sent it, and it was written in Aramaic. And if you read on the next, the subsequent psukim, are the actual text of the Aramaic letter, you know, the Persian Empire spoke Persian, but Aramaic was like the imperial language that they would send to issue proclamations in. Official, they would issue official proclamations in. So there's this Aramaic letter you can then read that was sent in Artaf Shasta's time to again give the Jews in Yehuda a hard time. So we see a bunch of names here. And the question really becomes, who are these people, and when did they live? And based on that, we're going to figure out when the Purim story happened, when the Beit HaMikdash was built. We know these people in Koresh is known for the fact that he said the Jews can go back, but the upshot of this whole fight with the locals was he issued a restraining order, you know, so a cease and desist order. And first he told them to go back to Yudah and rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, then the non-Jews there said, oh, the Jews are plotting against your empire. He said, okay, you know, cancel their Beit HaMikdash. So the Beit HaMikdash doesn't really get built then. Achashverosh is important for the Purim story. Artaf Shasta is important because he's the king 
to whom Nehemiah was an advisor, and he eventually sends Nehemiah back to Eretz Yisrael. During this time as well, Ezra comes to Eretz Yisrael. But that actually is important because he built the second Beit HaMikdash. Now based on these psukim, in what order did these kings live? So, the most generally accepted view in Chazal, from a source called Seder Olam Rabbah, which is like a sort of midrashic history of the world, that tries to count how many years we're at from creation of the world, and data, come with a chronology of the world's history, essentially based on Pesukim, you know, if it says, Adam lived a certain number of years till he had a kid, and then shaped a certain number of years till he had a kid, you know, counting all the way through Jewish history, sometimes you have problems that Pesukim aren't specific enough, so for that, Seder Olam Rabbah didn't want to just make things up, so you'd always assume one of two things. One would be, if the Tanakh doesn't tell you about it, it didn't happen. So if the last date you have for a certain king is, I don't know, the 13th year of his reign, then presumably he only reigned for 13 years, because if anything important happened in year 15, the Tanakh would have told us. Alternatively, when that doesn't work, and there's still things that are difficult to figure out, Seder Olam Rabbah relies on Midrashim to fill in the gaps. Now this book had a lot of influence. Again, the Gemara generally assumes Seder Olam Rabbah's chronology to be accurate. And when we say today that we're living in the year 5771 from the creation of the world, that assumes 5771 as counted by Seder Olam Rabbah. So this is a very influential work. So Seder Olam Rabbah makes the following assumption, that Koresh clearly came first. There's no question about that. If you read through relevant books in Nach that deal with this period, he clearly came first. After that is where there's some question. So they look at the Pesukim here, and they say, the first Pesuk we have mentioned how the Jews are given a hard time from Koresh ve'ad, the reign of Daryavesh Melech Paras. What does it mean from Koresh and up until Daryavesh? Does that sound like Daryavesh lived right after Koresh? No, there's got to be some gap in between, right? That's right, that's space here. They said, you know, from Koresh all the way until Daryavesh time, the Jews were given, were constantly being harassed by the non-Jews in Yehuda. And what, 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 what were some examples of that harassment? So we're going to look at a couple of examples within that time period, within that gap from Koresh to Dayavesh, there was an incident involving Achashverosh, and Achashverosh apparently lived in between. And there was some other incident in Artav Shasta's time. If you asked me, I would have said, I guess Artav Shasta lived in between also. The state of goes to somewhat different now. They say, no. Remember what I said a second ago. We assume if anything important happened like in a king's reign, that would be important for counting years, the Tanakh would have told us about it. So Dayavish built the Beit HaMikdash. In what year was the, of Dayavish was the second Beit HaMikdash completed? Does anybody know? Oops, so much for that. The sixth year. He started building it in the second year, and he completed it in the sixth year. Yeah, this is not going to last very long. Uh, Anyway, so Daryavesh, in years two through six of his reign, builds the Beit HaMikdash. The first time you ever hear of Artav Shasta is when Ezra returns to Eretz Yisrael. Anybody want to guess what year of Artav Shasta Ezra makes Aliyah? Not much earlier. Again, I gave you a hint. I told you Daryavesh finished building the Beit HaMikdash in his sixth year. Ezra makes Aliyah in the seventh year of Artav Shasta. So now, Chodel come along and say, oh, Great, we have one king who only seems to exist through his sixth year. Another king who only seems to exist 
starting in his seventh year. So let's connect the dots and assume that they're really the same guy. And there was one king who did a lot of important things, because from year two to year six, he built the Beit HaMikdash, and starting in year seven, he you know, supported Ezra's Aliyah. So Chazal basically wound up then with these two kings being one. So basically we have three Persian kings of any real significance. One who sends the Jews back to Israel, but does not go to Beit HaMikdash, because he stops it. He said he was going to, but he stops it. And then in the middle of Achashverosh, we know something about how Koresh tried to build a bit of Mikdash originally, but called it quits. So he is sitting there partying it up, celebrating how the bit of Mikdash is never going to be rebuilt. Little does he know that his son, Daryavesh, slash Artashasta, who, by the way, according to Chazal, is going to be Jewish because his mother is going to be Esther, that their king is going to go ahead and actually rebuild the bit of Mikdash after Achashverosh's time. Okay? Everything clear until now? <laughs> Not so clear. We got... Again, four names, Chazal conflate two of them, so now we have three people. Each one of these people is known for one or two important events. The first one said, you can go back to Eretz Israel, I'm going to let you build the Beit HaMikdash, but then he, he didn't follow through on that, he stopped the construction. So when he dies, there are some Jews who went back to Eretz Israel, but they have not actually built the Beit HaMikdash. We have another king who we know about from the Purim story, because he did all the stuff in the God Esther. And then after that king dies, another king comes along and actually builds the second Beit HaMikdash and supports Ezra and Nehemiah's return to Eretz Israel. I hope that's all clear, because now things are going to start getting tricky. <laughs> along come modern historians, and this part, I really wanted to give you a whole display from Wikipedia, but we're not going to be able to do that because we don't have a computer to project. This one's already flopping over, so we have to go back to this board. They come along and they say, we know five different names of Persian kings living around that time. Was there a generic name for Persian kings? Oh, good. So one of the things certain fortune try to, certain kings, certain fortune try to argue that Artak Shasta was a generic name like Paro, and so any king could have been called Artak Shasta. That's part of defending, well, how did their governors get two names? So, Dervish was what his parents named him. Now, Shasta means he was a Persian king. Um, okay, so we have Cyrus. <coughs> so that's pretty much a no-brainer. Cyrus equals Koresh, right? We then have this king named Cambyses, whom we haven't seen anything about yet. Cambyses. We then have a king named Darius. This is in the Persian records and Greek records. Darius looks a lot like Darius. That's an old brainer again. That's Darius. We then have a king named Xerxes. And lastly, we have a king named Arda Xerxes. And I'm going to write at the end here, etc. So historians come and say, first of all, that etc. is very important. Besides these kings. Seder of Olam Rabbah believes that the Persian kings we wrote until now are the only ones who existed, because there's no other ones in Tanakh. And therefore, they assume after Artaxerxes, you right away have Alexander the Great conquering Eretz Israel and the Greek Empire taking over. Historians say, no, that happened much later. There were all kinds of kings, you know, many, many Persian kings after these few. But these are the few of the 
early Vayetsheni era that we're talking about now of Param or building the Beit HaMikdash. So Cyrus is clearly Koresh. Darius seems like Darevesh. Artaxerxes sounds a lot like Artach Shasta. Again, especially if you remember that X is like a Chet. Artach, you know, the end doesn't sound great, but the, that Artach part, and there is a Rish in there, and Artach Shasta, it's a pretty close approximation of Artachasta, certainly more so than any other name. Xerxes Tachashverosh, we explained, once this really becomes again, it becomes pretty clear we're talking about Achashverosh, and Cambyses, we don't know what to do with that name. So, we come back to these Psukim, what I want to argue is that the Psukim themselves read just fine according to this. Because the Jews were being harassed from the days of Koresh Malkaras, that's the beginning, all the way up until the time of Daryavesh. Sounds like somebody was a king in between. So, somebody was, this guy named Cambyses. Ah, he's not mentioned anywhere in Tanakh. Well, he didn't do anything of significance for the Jewish people. Tanakh knows he existed because it has to tell us that the Jews were being harassed from Koresh's time all the way through the time of Daryavesh because there was somebody in between named Cambyses. And then after that, again in Achatverosh's time, in Xerxes' time, and again in Artaxerxes' time, in Artaxerxes' time, in all those kings' reigns, various letters were written that were hostile to the Jews living in Eretz Israel. So, when reading these psukim, the psukim themselves do seem to fit fine with this chronology. But, it has certain major ramifications for how we look at this year, this period. Most notably, when does this place the Param story? After the building of the Beit HaMikdash. That's a pretty big difference. Right? It also means that the people we know of from Artaxerxes' reign, Ezra, Nehemiah, lived a couple of generations after people we know from the Ravish's reign. What famous Jews lived in the Ravish's time? A couple of important Nevi'im and a couple of important leaders. So clearly, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi possibly, Malachi itself has no dates. Chazal generally assume that Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi live it together, the three of them is like a triumvirate, but Chazal also assume that this whole period has collapsed. So if you would have told them, no, these kings lived in different times, we don't know when they would have placed Malachi then. But Chagai and Zechariah date their Nebuot to Derevesh. So they clearly lived in his time. Who was the political leader of the Jews at that time? Zerubbabel. And the Kohen Gadol was Yoshua ben Yehud Sadak. So we have a bunch of Jews who led them at this time. Now I would argue, again, this actually works, these psukim work very nicely with this chronology, because we don't ever find, and you know, I invite all of you to read through all of Ezra and Nehemiah, you won't find one time where Ezra ever has a conversation, or Nehemiah ever has a conversation with Chagai, or Zechariah, or Yeshua Kohen Gadol, or Zerubbabel, which is kind of perplexing if these two people were the same king, and in the year 6, you have Chagai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, and Yeshua Kohen overseeing the construction of the Beit HaMikdash, and one year later, Ezra comes from Bavel, and they never talk to each other. So in Chazal, they talk to each other all the time. In Chazal, they're all manchukin together, and Mordechai is there with them, and so is Daniel. You know, any figure that's anywhere around this time, they're all together. But absolutely, they never ever interact. 
And, you know, he's not alone bothered by this. They tried to find all kinds of ways to connect these people. They said, Malachi really just means my messenger. It's not his real name. His real name is Ezra. So Ezra was there with them. Or, really, you know, we have Daniel all over the Purim story. He was Memuchan or he was Hatach. But if you read the Pesukim at face value, it really seems like the reign of Darius, the reign of Artaxerxes, the Tachshasta, are far enough apart that the Jews have different leaders in each of those generations. And this brings us to the question, which I'm sure is bothering some people here. Uh, did I just make this up now because I read some Persian history? Were there any Jewish thinkers before the 20th or 21st century to say that maybe the Pesukim don't fit exactly the Seder Olam Rabbah? I want to look at a couple of people like that. Um, first, in sources number two and three, we have commentaries to the book of Ezra. If you take out a Mikrokadola, certainly any older Mikrokadola to Ezra Nachamia, you'll see a commentary called Rashi and a commentary called Ibn Ezra. It happens to be that neither Rashi nor Ibn Ezra wrote a commentary on the book of Ezra. So the comment, what happened with Rashi is he wrote a commentary on most of Tanakh. He never completed Ezra Nachamia and Divrei Yamim. So other you know, rabbis in France thought sometimes they could use a phrase of Bey Rashi or Beit Midrash Hosha Rashi. People who are from Rashi's, you know, general orbit or general school of thought. So in some cases in the Gemara, we know these were descendants of his. He had a son-in-law named Rivan who finished his commentary on Maka. His grandson Rashbam wrote a commentary on most of Babatra and the Psachim. So certain people in like Rashi's extended orbit of Talmidim, descendants, would write commentaries that tried to follow in the footsteps of Rashi. So, sometimes they did a good enough job, they would fool the printers and get printed as Rashi. And in Ibn Ezra's case, so Ibn Ezra lived a little, a little before Radak and Radak's brother Moshe Kimchi and the Kimchi family, who were also great Sephardic Mephorshim. The Kimchi family came from Spain and immigrated to southern France, to Provence. So Moshe Kimchi, of Yosef Kimchi was like the patriarch. He was Radak and Moshe Kimchi's father. And among the brothers, there's a very big age gap, kind of like the Rav and Ravon Soloveitchik. They're about 15 years apart. And so they're brothers, but one is seen as very much like a senior figure, almost a mentor of the younger one. Radak talks about his brother Moshe Kimchi like it was his rabbi, even though they were brothers. Moshe Kimchi was significantly older than him. And Radak, being the Ben Zakunim, had his father pass away when he was young. So Radak didn't get a chance to learn that much from his father. His older brother was a real you know, mentor and guide to him. So this older brother, Moshe Kimchi, took certain books where, you know, where we don't have a commentary from Ibn Ezra, and you know the Kimchis were great grammarians. Ibn Ezra was right up their alley. They so respected Ibn Ezra that Moshe Kimchi wrote a commentary. He really tried to write, like, what, what would it be if Ibn Ezra would have written a commentary to a book like Ezra. And again, he did a good enough job that people bought into that and actually printed it as Ibn Ezra. So, this parish that I call Miyuchas Rashi, attributed to Rashi, gives us a couple of different approaches from Chazal. If you look, for example, in, in Pasuk Zion there, he mentions that Masechah Rosh Hashanah, there's a view that says, Hu Koresh, Hu Dereva Shorta Shasta. I didn't want to, didn't want to go there. There's a view on Chazal that takes three of these kings and mix them into one king. That would be a nightmare to fit that into any chronology, but you see, he mentions there's a view like that. Um, but then he says, but if Seder Olam has said that Yavesh or Tachshasta, in Seder Olam has always said that Yavesh is Artachshasta, that's what we said before, that just those two kings are one person. 
the whole kingdom is called Tachshasta. That's what someone asked before. This idea of having a generic name like Avimelech for Philistine kings or Paro for Egyptian kings. So any king could have also been called Tachshasta. Look at Moshe Kimchi. He says something a little different. He says that Achashverosh there, who Achashverosh had two names. Achashverosh was his Hebrew Aramaic name, and Tachshasta was his. Persian name. So, he's not saying this was a name for every king, but Dr. the king Achashverosh had two names. So that's not what Chazal said. And Moshe Kimchi, source number three. Now, this is Ibn Ezra's view also. This is a case where you see him following Ibn Ezra's footsteps. Ibn Ezra did write a commentary on Daniel where some of the same issues come up. And so Moshe Kimchi basically took this idea that was in the teachings of Ibn Ezra elsewhere and applied it here because he's trying to follow Ibn Ezra's general approach when writing a commentary on Ezra. So we have two Rishonim, Ibn Ezra and Moshe Kimchi, who have their own calculation, which is it's not what historians say today, but I'm trying to show you it's not what Seder Olam Rabbah said either. In addition, Rashi did write a commentary to Daniel. Look in source number five. Source number four is simply the puzzle if you want to see what Rashi is commenting on. But since we're short on time, we're going to go straight to source number five here, where Rashi tells us about these kings, Razal Amru, so the Chazal taught Seder Olam, the Koresh Achashverosh Vidaryavesh Shabana Habayit. So they gave this order that it's being referred to by Daniel here of Koresh, then Achashverosh, right then the Purim story, then Artachshasta slash Daryavesh, this king who here he calls Daryavesh, who built the Beit HaMikdash. Skip a few words that are going to bog us down. Aval, but, says Rashi to Daniel, the Sefer Yosef Ben Gurion, and Yosef Ben Gurion's writing, who's that? That's what they showed him called Josephus, even though it's not his real name. They didn't know he was called Flavius. They think he's called Yosef Ben-Gurion, because there was another Jewish general named Yosef Ben-Gurion at that time. Rashi didn't have Josephus' real Greek writings. If he did have them, he wouldn't have known how to read Greek. But there was sort of like the art scroll Josephus, the like Fermi Josephus that Adri Shonim had, called Sefer Yosephon. It was a later book written by someone who had access to historical stuff like Josephus, and he, you know, firmified it enough that it was comfortable for Rishonim to read it. And they considered it a valuable historical source. You know, they didn't have like a library like they have across the street here in YU where they can just look up all kinds of historical work. So every text that you had that might have any valuable information on it was very precious to you. So Rashi says, in his book I saw that there was some other king, Koresh's son, who reigned before Achashverosh, Ushmo Bambisha. Anybody want to play academic for a second and change one letter in Bambisha's name? Kambisha. Very good. Coffee metal is very similar. So it says in Yosifon, I, I saw what, again, we've now found in many more historical sources, Kambisha, Kambizis, who lived after Koresh. So, again, Rashi doesn't go through all the ramifications here of it. He gave Chazal's interpretation too, and he probably assumed that was the more correct one. But you see, he wasn't like horrified at the idea of including in his commentary, by the way, there's another opinion out there, there's another king named Cambyses, which would throw off a lot of these calculations. And perhaps the strongest statement anyone makes, and just for effect, they gave you the whole sheet to show you, this the whole other side, I gave you this entire long passage from the Balmor just to see what's out there, even though... Most of it is not going to be our problem for now. Most of it is commenting on that Gemara that we saw quoted in Miyuchas the Rashi, what's called Pseudo Rashi, the commentary attributed to Rashi on 
Ezra, this idea of somehow this medrash that says, Koresh, Dayevesh, or Tashasta, they're all the same. And the Gemara has certain textual problems. Most of this is working out just what did that Gemara say? What did that Gemara mean? At the end of the whole thing, the part I underline, suddenly he says, you know what? This whole long passage I just wrote to you is all just to explain what it says in Midrash Rabbeinu. However, really, what's the simple pshat in the psukim? Not at all like that. There's a pasuk that refers in one pasuk to Koresh Tayevesh Rantakshasta Melech Paras. And Chazal were surprised. Why Melech? Why not the plural form Malchay? It's like Koresh Tayevesh Rantakshasta, King of Persia. Sounds like they're one guy. See, that's why Chazal got this idea that they were all one king. But really, what's the pshat of that? There were three kings. It's, as it's an irregular form, but it means the same thing as if it said those three kings. Kings of Persia. They were all different people. There were three different kings. I don't know why they're all listed in one Pasuk, because they all did important things regarding the construction of Yerushalayim. Koresh gave the initial order to rebuild Yerushalayim, the Yavish built the Beit HaMikdash, Arthashasta lived later than that, in Ezra and Nechemia's time. We know Nechemia spent a lot of his energies renovating, strengthening, fortifying the walls of the city. The Beit HaMikdash was already built by then, because Arthashasta, Artaxerxes, lived well after the Yavesh, and therefore lived after the Beit was already rebuilt. But the Apostles, if you look it up in context, basically says that the Jews kept on doing construction to Yerushalayim under all three of those kings. They're all named, so all three of them did important things. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read the rest of this inside, but we get the idea here. What I'm trying to argue is that what initially what was being framed as a debate between Jewish sources and non-Jewish sources is really about Pshat versus Drash. And this comes to the last point that I brought up, and I think we're supposed to be ending in a few minutes. I tell you my talk, not just when the Purim story took place, but also how it's an educational dilemma for us. And I use the phrase modern orthodox here, because depending on what circles you travel in, this is not necessarily an educational dilemma. If one looks in the writings, for example, of the Chazonish, he has a very simple answer to this dilemma, which is non-Jewish historians are all liars, so whatever they said is not true. And so we don't need to waste our time reading these names on the board. And the history happened exactly like it says in Seder Olam. And I think it includes saying something like, Ashrei Mishal right? Your best, uh, the best way to not have any dilemma is to simply not read half the story. If you don't read one side of the discussion, then you won't have a dilemma. And I guess the sense from most of the, and Mitchell first in his book, again, surveys these approaches, he points out most of the people who take that type of a stance don't, you know, they, they live up to their own, they practice what they preach, which means they don't really read the sources, and so it's difficult to have read the sources, they don't really give you a way to resolve any contradictions. They just say, well, there are no contradictions, because half the sources are, are worthless and may as well not exist. And so, if we are sending our children to the type of schools where they're generally taught the, the subject of history, and we tell them about American history or world history, they're generally taught that the stuff you're teaching them has truth to it, then that approach is not going to work for you. 
So the opposite extreme approach would be to say, you know what? Chazal did their best with the sources they had. We don't have the limits they had of you know being lucky if they had one copy of Sefer Yosifon in their whole city. We have wonderful libraries like the Wayu Library. We even have a good range of books on a type of like this in a typical town library wherever any of you live. And so we're going to tell our kids, look, the same way we wouldn't send you to a doctor who practices Chazal's medicine, we're not going to teach you history on the basis of rabbinic statements from earlier times that lack the historical knowledge we have now. We're simply going to teach this chronology and that perm happened after the Baichini was built and that the Yerush and Artav Shasta are separate kings who live far apart and you know Ezra and Haggai never saw each other, never met each other. However, I think if we do that, we'd be setting ourselves short as well. Uh, I think fundamentally that has to be the general direction. And one thing they wanted to do if I had a computer was to throw the chronology specifically from Wikipedia. Why Wikipedia? Because every teenager today, when he's sent to write a paper or learn anything about history, is the first place they look. And all the you know, secular studies teachers are struggling about how to make sure when the kid hands in his paper, he didn't get it only from Wikipedia. So any 15-year-old kid who probably knows how to use a computer better than his parents do, if he has any question about Persian chronology or the Purim story, that's the first place he's looking. And right there, he's going to see very clearly a king list like this with all the et cetera spelled out. And to try and tell this kid, oh, you know, well, Jewish tradition says that none of that is true, and make it like an Ikar Amunah, the kid has to believe, oh, that's not true, might work in the short run when the kid doesn't know how to assess that evidence, but it's creating a situation where at some later stage, as the kid matures and is at a point where he could still be a believer, if being a believer meant believing what it says in Megad, Esther, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, which is challenging enough the way Bible's taught in most universities today. But now he was told he wants to be a believer, that he has to, has to also believe that all kinds of midrashim about this period are also historical fact, and if not, then he may as well not bother, you know, believing in this whole religion altogether, then it's very possible he'll put two and two together and realize that the only logical conclu- conclusion for him is in fact to uh, not believe in any of this altogether. And so I think our basic approach for ourselves has to be to think in the general model of Pratt and Drash. What's great about that is there's a long-standing tradition about that in terms of Tanakh in general. Any you know, modern Orthodox high school with Tanakh is taught in a sophisticated way, kids already understand that, you know, by the time they're in high school, they're not just reading Chumash Rashi and that's it. They're reading Chumash Rashi Ramban, Chumash Rashi Ibn Ezra, they're comparing strengths and weaknesses of different Mephorshim, they understand that many of these Mephorshim, like Ibn Ezra, did not consider Medrashah Chazal to be the final word in, in non-halachic matters, and so all we have to do is put this into that same construct. It is a bit more radical because when we ask those kids of the Hebrew data, we expect them to say 5771, and we all really mean now 5771 asterisk, you know, according to Seder Olam Rabbah, which assumes Midrash to be historical fact, which we don't necessarily really assume. But we do that every time we write an important Jewish document. One of the years I was in college, I was in Roshach this year, we were learning with Sechah Gidin, and every time we'd have a discussion with the text of the Get, he'd always mention how the text of the Get says, um, you know, such and such date, the Briat Olam, the creation of the world. The Median Shadow Manan Khan, according to the way we count over here. Why according to that count? So Reflector is very well versed in many obscure Shonam and Gamaras, including the Balamor, would say, Oh, because you know there's a Balamor Rosh Hashanah where he points out, you know, that's the whole back page of the source sheet that 
not everything in that count is necessarily proud of the psukim. And so that's the count that we use by convention, but we don't necessarily know. So I think we're lucky we have the Balamor. What are the odds of finding, it's not every day you find a Balamor in Rosh Hashanah that has anything to say about Shuto Shal Mikra, but I think that has to be the model we use. That enables us to dial down the rhetoric a little bit in terms of not making this, you know, some cardinal principle of faith where either you believe in every medrash that's used in Seder all Rabbah's calculations, or you're a heretic, which means if you preach that, some people will buy into everything, and some people will buy into none of it. Um, and one last thing, two, two last points I want to make in connection with that. One is, I spoke a second about high school. The does get trickier the younger that you get. You know, young children a lot of times, even in the type of schools, they want them to eventually appreciate the sophistication of Pshat and Drash and Tanakh, face the challenge that, you know, a seven-year-old kid doesn't necessarily understand different layers of meaning. If you're going to tell him a Medrash or tell him a Rashi, he's going to remember it. And so I think, you know, whatever we do for Pshat and Drash has to be done here too. That may mean teaching certain Medrashim to a second grader. But we want the kid to know the idea of Achashverosh and the, the, the Megillah, having, you know, the Beit HaMikdash in the background. Even if we don't necessarily assume the Ishmaels will be rebuilt, because it was rebuilt, the fact, you know, Rabbi Hittery spoke about earlier, if anyone was in this room for the previous lecture, the whole issue of, like, what are the Jews doing at his feast, instead of working, you know, in Yerushalayim with the Beit HaMikdash, what about the fact that for them, the special building that has an outer courtyard, and an inner courtyard, and an inner, inner part, where you can only go sometimes with permission, and if not, then you might die. The fact that all of that is... Achashverosh's palace and not the Beit HaMikdash is a problem. And to convey that to a seven-year-old kid, the best way to do that is to teach them certain Midrashim that we have that are very vivid and colorful that assume Seder Olam's chronology. And so I think it's something where you can start by teaching a kid something, saying it's a Midrash, and hoping as the kid gets older that'll mean more to him, and making your lessons more sophisticated the older the kids get. One last caveat that I think is very important to question against, which you do find sometimes in certain from history books, is trying to take Chazal dates and convert them to secular dates. So you can get certain art school type history books where we'll say Bayat Shani was built not in the you know five sixteen that there was before, but in three fifty, watch three fifty, because we took seventy and counted about two hundred and twenty years. This creates a huge mess because the whole use of having a date in any system is that there's a system for which these dates are calculated which helps you put something in the context of other things at that time. So you tell someone a certain historical event happened in 350 BCE, they can take out an encyclopedia and read about what happened then. The OU made a very funny error with this. The OU didn't attend this lecture. And a few years ago, those of you who are old enough to remember the Jerusalem 3000 events, they came out a special historical timeline where all the Jewish events, like Ezra Zaliah, were dated by Seder Olam's chronology, because you know, they took Jewish sources for it. They wanted to help whoever's going to use this timeline put it within the context of general history. So they made a timeline on top of general history. Now, how are they going to know when Nebuchadnezzar lived in secular history? How are they going to know when Alexander the Great lived? They opened up an encyclopedia. They didn't realize that those dates don't match with the Jewish dates. So suddenly you find, you know, people from the Nevi'im from the Persian period living under the Greeks because you look at the date they got by counting back in Seder Olam years from 1990, whatever, that they were in then. And they didn't realize that by doing by doing that for the Jewish figures, that doesn't you can't do that and then also say that Nebuchadnezzar lived in the 590s and 580s BCE and destroyed the Beit in 586 BCE. I think there is value in teaching the Seder Olam 
system. That's you know, the basis for things like saying the Jews were in Egypt for 210 years, which is not written in the Pesukim anywhere. And so we want our kids to know that. But it's important, if you want to use Jewish dates for whatever lesson you're doing, use Jewish dates counting from 0 to 5771. If you want to use secular dates, you have to play by the rules of secular history for that. You know, mixing them is when you create these crazy situations where someone's like, wait a minute, I didn't know that, you know, Ezra lived in the time of the Roman Empire, and he didn't. Nobody thinks he did. Even because I don't think that, historians don't think that. Uh, any questions? Now would be a time for questions. If not, people are free to go. Uh, I think.